Travis Hartman, here we are again. I think this is like three times a charm or something, isn't it? It's already all running together, Ross. I'm not sure. <laughs> You're so entertained. Well, thanks for taking some time for the Big Water Podcast here. Uh, I know, believe it or not, I think you personally are kind of boring, but yet people say bring Travis back on. Both of them. Well, unpredictable, right? <laughs> So, you know, we did we did a little bit of a game show thing before, because while this information is is exciting to those that are hardcore into this stuff, it can maybe like in your day job, we've joked about this before. It's sometimes, you know, it's like reading off, uh, you know, medical reports or something. It's maybe not the most exciting thing to listen to, but yet it's really good information. And so we had a little fun with that before with um, let's make a deal style thing. Ross, did you know? I have prepared zero for this. Uh, producer dude is shaking his head. He knows. What did you prepare? So I, I think this is a point where I, I'm going to take over the podcast, right? Now you're becoming the interviewee. I'm the interviewer. Thank and God. That is well needed. <laughs> We've been waiting for that. So thank you, Travis. So you're in the minority now, Ross. Now it's two on one. So I've been living there, but. <laughs> this is actually almost a version of did you know, but what I would like to do is present you with things that we know, things that we measure, things that we see in our daily work here. And then I'd like you to tell me, what does that mean for your fishing? How does it alter where you fish? What techniques you use? Um, some of them might be short answers. Some of, I think a few of these questions we could probably spend the whole time on if you choose to. So, and I and that's the neat part about this is so many times when we talk both on the podcast or, you know, privately is so the information that I'm getting from you. Some of that's kind of like, oh, it makes it click in with what I'm seeing as a guy that's on the water almost every day. And then other times you're, you know, we kind of rarely are we in disagreement on things. It's more of like, okay, maybe this makes sense. Or here's a little scientific proof, putting real numbers with what I've kind of experienced. And I think this is important for people that, you know, probably don't get to fish as much as I do, which is, um, understandable, but now we're able to kind of help cut that curve for them a little bit. Yeah, I think it could be really interesting because some of the stuff on here you and I have discussed, I, I probably know what you're going to say and, and other stuff I don't. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on some of it. Let's do this. All right. So I, I think it's fair uh, just since we have a broad audience and maybe not everyone knows Lake Erie extremely well, just to set the stage, you know, we have a almost three lakes in one. We have a shallow, warm, productive west basin. And then as you move east, you get deeper, colder, less productive. And many of our walleye spawn in the western basin. And they, they make an annual migration where they spawn here. Then they head east to colder, deeper water and return back here in the fall at some point. So that that's kind of the, the starting point. And I'm going to kind of walk through a season if that works for you. So we're, we're on a beautiful okay. May, day, May day right now. It's cold out. We are we, we are not in a beautiful May day or I wouldn't be sitting here. I would be. <laughs> this is a this is a blow day for in full fairness for everyone. Yeah. And, it, and it's cold and it feels like March more than May. But uh, thinking about all that, you know, this is the very tail end of the spawn, probably still have a little bit of spawning going on right now, but mostly wrapped up. But one of the interesting things we see with telemetry is that the males come in, they, they go to a reef or go into a river, and they're there for six weeks or more. They hang out on literally on individual reefs. One male will just circle and, and move around that reef for six weeks or more. On the other hand, you have females that'll stage off of these spawning areas, come in in a very short period and drop her eggs, and then she leaves. So you have this dynamic of males that are there and they're going to be there, and you have females that are staging, coming in and leaving. So how do you use that in your uh, locations and fishing techniques to target what you want to catch? I'm sure you have some clients that want to catch trophies and want to get the fish of a lifetime, others that maybe want to catch them with a rod in their hands. So uh, how do you use their spawning, uh, you know, gender specific techniques to target what you want to catch? Yeah. I mean, I think on the short of it is, you know, a lot of people that uh, aren't from here and, you know, you talk to on the phone as, as a captain guide client or, you know, relationship. And these people think like, Hey, I want a hand and rod. Like I, I, I live in Minnesota. I want a jig fish, right? Like I don't want to troll crankbaits or, or whatever it may be. And again, I mean, you have talked about this privately, so I guess I'll bounce it back to you a little bit, but I would say generally speaking, I almost never catch females or a fish 
that is noticeably a female or a fish that's noticeably over, let's say four pounds on a jig. And I think it's just a location thing, right? Like those are the males, the females are there for two minutes, they're spawning, they're leaving, they're out. So when I get these people that think, Hey, we're on Lake Erie, there's a hundred million fish, there's giant fish. I'm, I'm really good jig fishermen. So that's what I want to go do. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is almost you have zero shot of catching a female or a mature female spawning female or whatever that may be or even post-spawn because those fish in my experience then tail off you know they go to those deep flats and, and the, the period between a and b there is so so small that while someone i'm sure is going to type in here and comment well i have and you say well, i'm sure out of 100 million fish between a and b definitely there could be some biting going on there but it's a very very small window and the odds are not in your favor so um, you know, again, and the other thing that, you know, I've learned through you guys just kind of confirming some of our stuff is, is that pre-spawn bite, it may be pre-spawn for fish A, B, and C, but not D, E, and F. And it's because we're like this, can I always explain it to people and you can correct me, you know, it's like a conveyor belt where all of the fish aren't spawning at the same time, like they may on Leech Lake or something where we have multiple waves, generally the biggest fish going first. And so, you know, when we're, when we're chasing pre-spawn fish, we may be able to do that for two or three weeks, but it's because of these multiple waves. And so, yes, I'm going in some of those same areas and one day is it's better than next as these waves kind of keep coming through. So. Yeah, that, that's completely accurate. What we've seen in the years that we've sampled and, and caught fish with our survey gear around spawning time is those biggest females go first and that. That can change each year. You know, some years we have ice until late March, early April, and things get pushed back. Other years we don't have any ice, and it can start early to mid-March. But generally, biggest females go first. Uh, as it progresses through the spawn, you start seeing more and more of the younger, smaller females. But one thing we did see, and I don't know if you can uh, agree with this because of your results or not, but uh, the females tend to show up around full moon events. So if you want to know that you have a better chance with a jigging rod and jigging the reefs that, you know, get one of those rare females while fishing that area. It, it's around a full moon event and likely in March, if you want a truly big fish, or at least a chance to catch one jigging. I think a lot of that, I, I hate to even say this out loud, but I guess we're going to, we're going to give a little bonus to those that do listen to this, right? Is I think a lot of that when I've seen that it's actually at night like when they actually bite, it's a night deal, you know, whether they're doing their thing during the daytime and feedings at night um, or hundred percent with these moon phase things, you'll see it all the time where you're like, man, every fish I'm catching is pre-spawn. We have a full moon and mm -hmm. literally overnight, you do not catch a mm -hmm. fish, you know, knowingly that is blown up with, you know, with eggs, or if you do, it's might maybe an older fish that is absorbing them. Cause you're like, this is a, you know, a rock down there, but yeah, it, it's an overnight thing. I mean, same thing with the water temperature, you know, it only takes just a, a little bit. And all of a sudden you're like, we're way too cold. We're way behind. Mm -hmm. You have a nice day or two. You don't have the wind blowing out of the East. And all of a sudden it's just the skies, you know, rocket ship just jumps right up and uh, things happen fast out here, good or bad. They happen fast. Well, you, you mentioned water temperature, so I'm going to go right into the next one because I think we covered that first one pretty well. I, I guess needless to say, when uh, you really target those females, you're trolling, right? You're trolling in the staging areas around the reefs, and that's how you're going to take your best shot at catching those fish. But uh, since you mentioned temperature, so uh, walleye and, and all freshwater fish up here are cold-blooded. Obviously, they don't control their own body temperature. So how do you adjust your speed uh, and presentation to some extent to match water temperature? Is there a direct connection to how warm the water is and how fast you could expect to be going? If it wasn't blowing 30 today, what, what would you be out there doing with uh, 40 degree water temps in early May? I, the answer is I don't. And two two prong approach to this. So I work with Fishhawk, which is a speed and temp probe. And so I've watched this stuff a lot and this may blow your mind, but I think temperature actually matters more in the summertime than it does in the spring and the fall. And again, you're, you're the guy, I truthfully want to know the response on this from a more scientific standpoint is two, two things going on. People misinterpret their speed, which I'll come back to. But number one is me and producer dude. Do you remember when we were shooting that with country Steve, um, that video, it was like January 1st, water was like 33 degrees. And we did like a 90 degree turn. Do you remember that producer, dude? I do remember that. It was a pretty flat calm that day too, right? It was, it was literally, we had to wait because first thing in the morning there was skim ice. 
and it was not a breath of air. And we had one boat. There was like literally one boat and he found me. He found me. And he decided that he needed to like, I thought I didn't know if he was going to detail my boat or what he was going to do. He was so close. But we had to do like a 90 degree turn because this guy literally stopped 100 feet from us. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And at that point, the fast side turn getting away. I mean, it, it, we, we were catching some fish, but crank the speed to like two and a half. 32, 33 degree water temp surface anyhow. So we're not down below. It's probably not much warmer if at, at all. And we just started rocking them. Two things going on there. We were only catching fish, generally speaking, going one way. You put the fish hawk down the current, right? So I think that it's, there's two things that go on. A lot of times I'm hearing guys, even this week, you know, alone, I can, I can't get them unless I'm going two to two, two, where, you know, as a guy that's fishing every day, you know, not beat the horse, but you know, you see this and you're like, Hey, today it's one, two's the prime. The next day it's one five. I think so much of this is misinterpreted because of what your actual speed is because of the current, especially when we get like a big East wind, it backs that up. It switches. Um, when you put a fish hawk down people, you will learn that you're not really trolling where you think you are. Your boat may be going 1.8, 1.9. Your lures may be doing one, 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 two, something like that. And so I think that that's a huge, huge deal. And from day to day, this, the speed thing changes so much that uh, we actually just put another video out literally just, and it was slow side turns. And we were literally having stalling the boards. And that's how our big fish were being caught where the lures quite literally were floating up. Um, you know, and then we were catching some on husky jerks, which sit there absolutely motionless. And that's, that's when they were biting. So I think speed does matter, but I think it's misinterpreted that the number 1.5 isn't really 1.5 all the time. So I, I think a lot of it, you know, it's physiologically speaking, it's more of how long it takes to digest that fish they just ate, maybe in a trolling sense, like you were just talking about it's fine to go to 2.5 or three when it's cold, but maybe you have to get it within a foot of their face for them to decide to make that effort to grab it. But, uh, and we'll get into, you mentioned kind of the summer thing and maybe temperature mattering more with speed in the summer. We'll, we'll come back to that one shortly, but, uh, well, actually backing up here. So here's another good example. Maybe when you can throw in your, your scientific on this, when you see guys jig fishing, right? So let's say our boat, we kind of know what's drifting about what it is. And you can look at your SOG for that pretty accurate. And you see guys jigging like, I mean, like they're having a heart attack or something, right? You see these guys and they're just, they're just ripping the tar out of something. And then they're catching fish, you know, because I've seen these guys, I'll, I'll watch when we're jigging, you know, there's generally people in close enough vicinity. And when you see that guy that's looking like he's having a heart attack that's jigging, you know, and he's catching them hey, we need to do something a little more aggressive, whether it's moving in the water column or what have you. But then so many days, you're almost just basically lifting and dropping that jig, right? And that's the difference. And really, I mean, that's, it's exponential, almost the same thing that it would be if it was trolling. I think we need to revisit this detailing your boat thing. And, and that guy's defense, <laughs> like he, he saw the boat. It needed it, right? Like when was the last time you cleaned the inside of that thing? Well, it's, you know, there's, there's, I don't, I probably need a power washer sponsor, but, um, I, I, in my, in fairness to me, I mean, the boat was wrapped and so it looked clean. It looked clean. He could not see the inside technically, but I understand where you're going with that. It's, it's, yeah. it's reasonable. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, we're going to move about a month from now, maybe three, four weeks from now, uh, put yourself in the mindset of Memorial day, late May, early June. And we know over here in the West for the, the bigger migratory fish that haven't left yet, they have access to a food source that they don't have the rest of the year. So we have mayflies starting to move around the sediment, becoming active, getting ready to, to swim up and emerge. Um, usually that primarily happens in June, seems like later each year than maybe a decade ago for whatever reason. But you have these fish that have a new food source, a unique food source that they don't usually have access to. And it seems like there's a technique that becomes pretty popular that time, uh, you know, primarily spinners. So do you see a connection between the mayflies becoming active and being available and that spinner bite getting really good? I, you know, I think what it is just a smaller package, right? I think the, what it is is just, you know, when you got these giant crankbaits and you're going Mach 10, and now these, there's probably, yeah, I mean, there's, you can look at them on your graph, right? There's four, five, six, seven feet thick 
of just almost motionless things that are just slowly floating to the surface. And I, I've often wondered, like, do you just think because they're down there, right? And unlike us swimming in a pool, like our mouths hopefully aren't open. Do you just, are they really eating these things? Or is it just like, because there's so bloody many of them down there, is it almost like a filter deal where they're, you know, they're going through them? Can they get that much nutrition out of them? Uh, it's one of those cases where it's the uh, least effort for the most return, right? They are very highly nutritious. And like you said, there are literally clouds of them, even before there are clouds in the water column, they're crawling around the sediment. So I, I think it's one of those cases where why would you pass it up? And and yeah, if you can almost functionally filter feed, you're going to fill up. But that brings me to the next question. And, and you'll hear from from anglers that don't fish Erie often, man, should I even come? You know, I, I hear it's really tough. <laughs> what impact do you think it has on maybe their feeding windows or how easy or hard they are to catch? Is, is it, should you not come then if you're new to the lake? I don't think so at all because there's certain fish just like people. Like there's people don't eat hamburgers, right? No matter best hamburger on the planet, they don't eat hamburgers. And um, I mean, producer duty, he's like, he he's vegan damn near right so he he's he ain't gonna eat like that steak right there he's gonna be like yeah you go ahead and take it <laughs> right <laughs> this is a true story that's not even a joke but true story it, yeah he's way healthier than all of us but um i can tell you that i've seen certain years where the bite definitely has been harder than other years some years you don't seem to miss a beat right and rather that's because that that mayfly hatch is strung out or not as thick or it's more diluted right but I think the spinner thing, 100%, or small spoons is another deal that guys use. I think that little bit of flash and just a smaller package. But I think the overlooked thing is also just, you know, depth in the water column. When you start getting post-spawn fish, you start getting some smaller fish biting now. You know, you're not catching those on a hair jig in 5, 10 foot of water. To me, when I can put a smaller package in deeper water, like I can't do that with, with a crankbait, right? You take a husky jerk, at some point, you, just, you can only get it so deep. And it's only can be so small, like the smaller the crankbait, generally the shallower it's going to go. And I think to me, I can run a tiny spinner package down literally on the bottom on a bottom bouncer, three way, whatever it may be, or a small bead chain and I can get down quick. And so for me, I think that that's, that's a big thing. Um, I would usually tell guys too to look for a harder bottom because there's going to be less mayflies in that vicinity. Um, you know, again, you correct me here anytime I'm wrong. Of course, I know you won't hesitate for that, but I mean, those are, they're, they're basically, they're gestating. Is that the proper term down in the mud? They come up through right mm -hmm. on a hard bottom. Like you're not going to have any, if hardly any of those in that area. And there are large sections out here of, of Lake miles, quite literally, whether it's rock or compacted mud, uh, zebra mussels or whatever you just don't have as many of those things so hmm. you get into an open mud flat yeah you're going to see giant waves on your fish finder that look like the things broke uh, from those may mayflies so one in doubt just stay away from them hmm. <laughs> so kind of continuing this line of thought so as the mayflies are, are wrapping up as as that is ending a lot of the big adult migrating fish are out of here and and we know from our telemetry that less than 10%-ish uh, stay. They stay in the Western Basin. They're not the typical migrator that most of them are. And there's also, if you want to call them local fish, I, I hear a lot of uh, talk about local fish. It's, it's not exactly something that's easy to prove or conclusively show. So I know you tend to, to fish around the islands or east of the islands. You don't necessarily go all the way to, you know, Conneaut, Pennsylvania, New York, and follow the, the big schools of the migrating fish. I'm curious what you do or what you see as things that you do to find those bigger fish, to find the ones that didn't migrate, to find maybe the local fish. Do you have uh, techniques or uh, areas that you think hold those fish? I think I've been set up, but <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be honest. I'm pretty open on this. I'm not going to completely tell you my A answer. I'm not going to lie to you. That's kind of a trade secret thing a little bit, but well, now looking for there, a <laughs> yeah, I, I think that I I tend to fish slower than most people, and I think that a lot of times when you just when you get in the best area and you slow down, it's better. You know, if you're pulling at Mach ten with crankbaits or spoons, you're going to get the the, the low bearing fruit as, as you'll say, right? And 
that's great until you have a little front or you have this or there's a full moon and they're feeding at night or whatever. There's a hundred different things or maybe they just aren't eating that day, right? It's like Monday morning or something. So I think when you get into areas that are what I would call high percentage or reproducible, because as a guide, I'm always trying to, I don't generally fish the areas that necessarily have the most amount of fish. I'd rather deal with a lot less traffic and fish that I know are going to be there tomorrow. Like me and you have, you know, we fished together quite a bit, whether it's in the same boat or not, it's a different deal. But I mean, and you know, I like to go to areas that like, Hey, these fish aren't going to move 10 miles from when I left them yesterday afternoon. And you'd be surprised that when you get in those, those high percentage areas and you fish them slow, you just have a whole lot different results than if you were to go through there at Mach 10. Like that comes back to the, you know, are you covering water to put your lures in front of the most fish or do you know where fish are and, and you're going to make them bite? Right. And right. it kind of comes back to knowing what you're doing and, and relating that speed to what you're trying to accomplish. So let's say that uh, maybe you're well east of the islands, you're, you're out in open water, you know, maybe a lot of the fish have gone, but there's still some migrators that are out in open water east of the islands. You know, we know that because of Lake Erie's depth and, and the way the, the lake is lays out that we get a thermocline. So you get a hard thermocline, temperature transition, and then you get water below it that becomes anoxic at some point. It's depleted of oxygen. So that impacts where bait fish are. It impacts walleye behavior and location. Um, when you're out in those situations, uh, do you use that to your advantage? Are you looking for fish on the thermocline? Are you are you able to to go fast but cover the right depth? How do you approach open water summer fishing when you have that thermocline in place? Well, percentage-wise, I definitely spend more time, let's say, in the central basin and probably the central to western end of that as far as number of actual days. Because you're right. I mean, I don't go any farther east than I have to. A lot of it's the, the guide clients, the business, just everything, lodging. It's it's a whole package deal, right? But I mean, I was just talking to one of the guys the other day and he's like, yeah, I forgot when you used to, you know, rent a place down in, in Conneaut in Geneva for a month. And, you know, back when the business was a little bit different and, and people were a little bit different with what they wanted too, you know, we, we did chase those fish more. And we had to do that when we didn't have 100 million fish because 10% of what we have now is a whole lot more than 10% of what it was 15 years or roughly ago when I was doing that. But um, I, the thing that I would tell people that's kind of off topic, but really not for what you just asked is, is, you know, they, people see walleyes and they think about 30 feet or less. So many bodies of water you got. And, and it's, if when I put pictures up, but I was in deep water today or something, I make comments like that. I always get blasted by a bunch of people that are like, wish I wish I could only fish 50 feet of water because you know, they're salmon guys, right. And they're in three, four, 500 feet of water, whatever it is. And I think though with walleyes, people get, really kind of wigged out and, and uncomfortable with, let's say, 80, 90 feet of water, 70, 80, 90 feet of water as we get in the you know western end of the eastern basin or the uh, eastern side of the central basin. So let's say for somebody that's in North Dakota, listen to this, let's say just west of Cleveland to the Pennsylvania line in that range, or maybe to like, you know, Fish USA is, is one of my partners over there in Pennsylvania, like in that range, that's where a lot of fish kind of get stacked up in the summertime. And I think it's almost easier to me because when you're down there, you don't have fish spooking from the cone, number one. And I almost don't care if I mark walleyes. I really don't. Because, yeah, I think there are some days when that water I can see 20 feet down, you know, that they are spooky. And, you know, with presentations on how we catch them dictates, you know, that, that is the case. But when I drive over them at 20, 25 miles an hour, I'm still going to mark the bait. And I'm always looking for that bait or the thermocline. So even though we're in 70, 80, 90, you can say 100 feet water, it doesn't matter realistically i'm putting my lures in 10 foot of water column plain and simple not much more than that and i actually learned quite a bit from uh, one of the other podcasts we did on the acoustic telemetry where they said that uh i'm making up terms because they weren't the, the proper ones but basically those fish are, are at or below that thermocline because they burn too much energy chasing stuff and the only ones that do are the small fish that are non-sexually mature i think was the term so basically the dinks that are legal fish but not much more than that hmm. and that's 100 percent by my experience you can go run stuff and i'll occasionally you know you see some marks or some bait high you'll run some stuff high and man you catch some fish boom 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 but they're 16 17 18 inches maybe and again when you're down in that neck of the woods and on a smelt based you know fishery basically at that point you, you are looking for better fish that's why you know a lot of the guys go down there 
And so to me, those fish, even though there could be anywhere and you think about, Hey, I got to spread my lures out 80 feet. Mm -hmm. No, you don't. You got a five to 10 foot window in most days. And that's why to kind of back this up, if I was on court here, what I would say like, Hey, look at guys that run a wire line. Guys have been doing this for a hundred years. They got a couple different predetermined leads of, of wire line that they use. And the only adjustment is, is where the thermoclines at, as far as where they, they, they move that up and down. And, um, not to get too long winded, but a really good story. We shot a video producer dude put together for us here last, I want to say it was like August. I think it was when we did it. And I went down there and it was crazy. I literally watched the thermocline from the storm just get blown out, went almost right to the bottom. And, you know, typically down there, I would say 40 to 50 feet is the window. You know, that's, that's where general we're at where the thermocline now is like 60, 65. That's a little tougher to fish multiple lines in that, in that depth and consistently keep stuff in there, you know, and, and it definitely cut down on the arsenal as far as what we could catch them on. Um, but we did. And, that was knowing that to go down there. And then sure enough, again, just watching it, didn't even have to use the fish hawk, even though we did for the current standpoint and driving our speed off of it. I could just see that thermocline basically readjust is the term I'm going to use. And it reset up, you know, a little bit deeper than it normally would. I want to say it was like 55 or 60 when it kind of reset back up there on day two of that deal. And it was crazy though, because you just watched all the fish and all the bait, boom, they, they went back to that comfort level. It's like standing in front of an air conditioner in the keys or something in August. It's just, it's what's going to happen. And it's, it's very reproducible compared to what we experience in the cold water periods in the central or Western basin to me. So you just covered so many things that I've got to kind of go through my list and like mention some of the things that I was going to ask you that you've already answered, but uh <laughs> I, I think it's, it's important to note that based on the acoustic telemetry, and we have tags that uh, record depth. So if we get the tag back, you know, we have this whole history of what depth the walleye was in during the life of that tag while it was at large in the lake. And and we don't have walleye that are just over 100 or 150 feet of water down there in the eastern basin. They're 100 to 150 feet down. They... I think that likely all of us have this, you know, view in our head of what depth walleye may be in and what we might be seeing on the sonar, depending how deep we are. I'm here to tell you in Lake Erie, walleye can be down to 100, 150 feet deep. So, okay, so here's my question, not to derail the train here, but if you got those walleyes that are 150 feet down, I'm going to tell you that they rarely see a lure. <laughs> and maybe that's why Absolutely. we don't see as many 10, 12, 11, 12, 13 pounders or whatever the biggest fish in the system are. But through the acoustic stuff, can we correlate that those are the bigger fish that are down there? So I, I would have to go back and, and look at the data set for that. Obviously, we have the fish size for each of those fish that we get the tags back for. So we, we could filter it and look at, you know, are the biggest fish the ones that are most likely to be that deep? My, my sense is no. My sense is really if, if you're a female and you migrate down there, it looks like there's a chance you're going to utilize water that deep at some point. And keep in mind, you know, we talked about the thermocline and lack of oxygen. You get down to the East Basin, there's oxygen below the thermocline. It does not get used up. It is fully oxygenated. The whole water column, even though there is a thermocline with a, a temperature gradient, but they have access to all that water and, and they use it if, if there's a reason. Is, to. is that the case also, let's say from Cleveland to like Erie, Pennsylvania? No. So somewhere at around Pennsylvania, so Eastern Ohio or East of Ohio, somewhere you hit the point where um, it transitions from no oxygen below the thermocline to having oxygen below the thermocline. It's mostly that eastern basin. I, it's safe to say point uh, or the uh, long point at the point that makes the eastern basin, you know, from there east, there is oxygen. I'd have to look at some of the details to see west of there how far that goes. Interesting. That's that's like really, you know, again, that, that simple information that is not going to change, right? Like I love right. stuff that like lasts more than a day or two, right? This is right. like <laughs> decades worth mm -hmm. that you know now know that you can eliminate a good portion of the water column or cannot eliminate yep. a certain portion of the water column. It, it's as knowing what you can and or can't is just as important as the other. And a lot of times, even if you're sonar, if you don't have it tuned in and, and or you don't know how to interpret where that thermocline is, 
in, in our central basin, just look at the fish, right? <laughs> if, if there's no oxygen below that thermocline, you will see the thermocline because of where fish are. And uh, you, you did, you mentioned something interesting that I wanted to circle back on. You were talking about like the depth of range that you're trying to put all your lures in. And you, I think you mentioned maybe a, a 10 foot range. So keep in mind with walleye, they can't quickly adjust their swim bladder inflation. So you think about salmon and trout, like, you know, steelhead, you can get a hit, you can see your rod go slack, and then it's jumping out of 50 feet of water. It's jumping right. before your rod even loads up. Well, I can't do that. You know, they, they have to slowly adjust their depth in the water column. They have to make longer uh, adjustments to their air bladder inflation. So I was going to ask, you know, is, so is 10 feet the magic window you know if you're within 10 feet of a walleye do you think it'll come up to hit or in that central basin situation is it more like five feet how, how close are you trying to put the bait to their nose knowing they can't make big adjustments in the water column from depth man i don't even, i don't honestly don't know how to answer that because mm -hmm. i think the other thing too is is so many times because of current like the 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 word current, like we could just do a billion podcasts, but the problem is it's not like two plus two. Like people listen to this one, two plus two, and that's four. It's always four. It's always going to be four. And with current, that's just not the case. And I think coming back to, to your question is, is like, well, we may think this is where the lure is at, you know, because I've, I've watched it with different, like Fishhawk has a little uh, probe deal that you basically can put on and it'll tell you based on pressure, like, hey, how deep that is. And my point is, is you can run five colors or 10 colors at times. And because of the density of, in the water, we're getting kind of deep here, right? Or also because of the current, all that stuff basically rolls together. So a, a bait that should be 50 feet down on a full core is no deeper than, than a half a core, which is, you know, roughly 25 feet down, right? Because it's all just both the water layer and also the current. It just causes, it's like, it's it's not stronger. It's just like a leaf in the wind and it just goes where it's it's going to go. And I think sometimes, again, same thing with people are like, oh, I've got a three ounce sinker on. Like, dude, that current mm -hmm. out there drowns grown human beings that are like great swimmers. Like the difference between two ounces and three ounces may be huge when you're going a mile an hour. Um, but it, it just, it doesn't, it, you can't adequately tell truly where you're at with your mm -hmm. stuff. And that, that's fair. I, I think your 10 foot window is probably as good of a ballpark as anything. You know, you, it turns out those things matter. And especially when you get fish oriented at depth and, you know, they, while the water might be clear enough to see something 20 feet above their head, likely they're not going 20 feet up to get it just because of their physical limitations. Right. Yeah. But, the, ten, the 10 foot could just be, you know, I'm, let's say I'm five foot off where I think I am. You know, because we, because again, that, that, like you said, that thermocline is almost like a, it's a, it's a new bottom is what I like to call mm -hmm. it. Right. Like everything else below that, where, where I'm talking about fishing generally doesn't matter a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And so that, that it's just, it's a, it's a soft new bottom. That's one of the terms I've used in seminars before. I've always said that you're at least five feet off, but that's my personal opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take, I'll take five. I'll take five. <laughs> So it does bring up something interesting, though, talking about that depth. And, and generally, we're talking clear water over there. But it it's something that we all, whether we know it or not, consider regardless of the depth we're fishing in. And that's color. So I, I think you would probably agree, and many people are aware, that you know the colors disappear in the old Roy G. Biv uh, order. So red, orange, and yellow are apparent high in the water column. The deeper you go, they disappear. Then you lose green. Then the last colors you lose are blue, indigo, and violet. So we all think about bluer color. We all that troll a lot. We all have boxes and boxes and boxes of different color lures. How do you think uh, those colors disappearing and, and light refraction and, and how that all plays out, how does that impact your color selection as you go deeper in the water column? Because... The deeper you get, the fewer colors are apparent. If I was a politician or a lawyer, I could probably sell this either way to you because <laughs> I have so much experience, you know, with when color has mattered or it hasn't. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is I don't think we have enough controls to, to know why that was that day and not the next. Like we literally just had a guide trip, you know, just, I don't know, it's like maybe three days ago, four days ago at this point. And we had a lure that we've been doing really good on and it was on a high lead. 
And so I was like, let's bring that one in, boys. That ain't caught jack. And I put it on the inside, and I looked over, and I saw a bunch of bait and a couple of high fish. And I said, yeah, I'm going to switch the lure out. And I put it on the inside, you know, with a lure color that had been working on the opposite side very deep, much, much deeper in the water column. Dude, this, this bait where we had run the paint off of another one, you know, that passed, but we had caught enough fish on the other stuff that we couldn't really monkey with that. And I still kind of like to leave a little checker out there. But at any rate, long story short, we took another color, put it on the inside, which, you know, I don't like doing normally for a fairly high rod as far as depth in the water column. And it just started going. I mean, every, it, was, it, it was like it was hooked up almost nonstop for, you know, five, six fish and probably a 20-minute period just in and out, in and out. Color mattered then because where, no matter where that was in the spread later, that worked. Um, but again, working with companies like silver streak and refrunner for you know almost 20 years i worked with those guys and those i think of both of those guys as the color kings i mean they both had like 400 stock colors right but the funny part is is when you look at chrome as i do a little research on stuff you know like chrome supposedly because none of our stuff in lures it's not like a high-end finish it's you know these are not these aren't gold plated and mm -hmm. so i've been told chrome after so many feet in the column which basically we're assuming we as long as we don't have like crazy clean water and lots of sunlight with the light penetration that we're dealing with it realistically in the water column chrome becomes black at the depths that we're fishing and i start thinking about that same thing you know red-headed wonder bread or something all these different colors that are so good or red throats on this all of these things are we just literally fishing black lures down there you know and then you throw some purple or, or some blue in that when the things are a little bit better that that's why that picks it up because those colors do come off as differently um there's a lot of the popular colors now. You look at like Rapala. They've got three Husky Jerk stock colors that are basically all black. Um, I mean, there's some spots and some things to make it so that it's not one color. A little marketing maybe in there, right? But um, And they're really popular. I can tell you, they really catch them. So, um, so that might come back to contrast, right? But you did, uh, you kind of walked me right to a point I wanted. Am to I stealing your thunder again? No, actually, you're... You're going right where I expected you to go. <laughs> the uh, that's a first on producer, dude. <laughs> yeah. It turns out that walleye eyes, you know, they their eyes aren't perfect. They're they're very well suited to low light conditions. It and it turns out they actually have fuzzy vision to some extent. So their cones are extremely large. So if you're going to characterize their vision as sharp or fuzzy. Those extremely large cones mean that they probably have fuzzy vision. So, really, they see well at low light. They have an advantage over their prey when light's low. And the interesting thing about the colors they see, they see red, orange, and yellow very well. They see green, and functionally, they don't see blue, indigo, or violet. And I've, I've heard it mentioned that because blue, indigo, and violet are the ones that last the longest, they're the deepest in the water column that are still apparent to walleye, they likely look black because of their eye structure. So what it com might come down to is contrast. What colors produce contrast based on color uh, absorption and, and clarity and all that? Well, it's funny you should say that because two things there. I mean, there's a lot of days where chrome blue, and it's no stranger, I love me some chrome blue crankbaits, and then chrome purple. And there are days where chrome purple will be five to one over chrome blue. And the next day it's the exact opposite. And it don't matter if I put five of them out, I put one on one side, one on the other, mix them around. It's like, that is the preference. There's no doubt. And, you know, when you start kind of putting the science behind it, that shouldn't make sense like that from what right. we're, we're, everything we're saying. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would say that the second half of that, when you talk about contrast, then maybe our contrast definition is a little different, but like with spinner blades, I want contrast, whether it's my beads, the front, the back of the blade, dots, something on there. I 100% am always looking for contrast. And, you know, back to Lori Rapala, you know, Rapala way back in the day, like the original one, that's what it was. It was white, silver, and black. And when that thing rolls, yeah. it, it provides contrast because that's what minnows and other, you know, the things do. And I think that for me, when I'm on a crankbait or a spinner thing, if I'm doctoring it up or having a color, 100% contrast, something that just changes that profile as it wiggles, wobbles, or spins. So I think it comes down to, we really like colors. <laughs> Scott Stecker often said, you know, it's it's the fishermen that are buying my color schemes, not the fish. But, but you no. also said the other reality is that 
when one color is working over the other, that's a real thing that day in that location at that time. So obviously adjust to what works, right? I, the color thing is, I, I always say it like this, us fishermen, we like to dictate what we think works or doesn't work. We always come, we come up, we come up with these things and we, you know, try to conceive why or why something didn't work or did work or whatever it may be. But the weird thing, and I, I've told clients this that fish with me, they know this a lot is there's a couple different captains, you know, we fish side by side quite a bit, rather it's communicating or just by chance, you know, being on the same kind of good fish. And how many times at the end of the day or in the parking lot, they'll say, Hey man, did you, did you have purple demon out there or whatever the color is? And we're like, yeah, I couldn't catch Jack on. I was pile driving him, but I couldn't. And I'll be like, man, that was our best one or, or mm -hmm. vice versa. And you, and you look at the differences in these colors, especially if it was like chrome blue to purple demon, anybody that's had you know, one of those. I mean, we're, that's night and day. That's apples and oranges. And even when we run a multiple boat trip, like, you know, you fished with me and, and run a group of people. And we're all fishing right in the same stuff. And at the end of the day, we're all doing something very, very different and mm -hmm. have different results. And I just wonder, you know, that's why I don't like to place color there, except for I could tell you another 10 stories where when... I text someone or they text me and say, Hey, you know, did you try uh, black headed wonder bread? And you put one out and you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> like they, you put eight of them out. That's what they mm -hmm. want. Like we were catching fish and everything else, but we are really catching them now. And even though it didn't really make sense. And so when you have five boats at all are definitely catching way more on black headed wonder bread or insert color here, um, color matters, but I think oftentimes we misinterpret it or we think that that's all that it is. So when you put eight of them out, yeah, that's all well, you can catch them on because that's all you got out. Right? Yeah. Well, and I, I do think there are likely regional differences. So a walleye fishery in North Dakota with different water color characteristics and different prey, you know, might have different go-to colors. And I, I think a good example of that, you know, you look at Lake Erie, Western Basin walleye are eating gizzard shad and emerald shiners for the most part. Central Basin walleye are eating rainbow smelt. And then across the lake, they're all eating at times gobies, white perch, yellow perch, you know, the less preferred stuff that they might encounter. But have you looked at uh, many Lake Erie gizzard shad? I know you obviously see some dead occasionally. You probably see some in the stomach. We saw a lot dead this year. Yeah, right. I've noticed in some of the fish that we catch that some of the gizzard shad are almost gold plated. They're not what you think of when you think of a gizzard shad. The bigger they, ones, especially. Well, and I'm thinking more of those, you know, the five, six, seven, eight inches, the, the big young of year in the fall. And right. uh, when they get stressed, they get a, a red nose. They'll actually have some blood vessels or something burst in their nose. So you look at these gizzard shad that are gold with a red face. And then you think about like gold clown and some of the colors that we run. 100%. There's times we're matching the hatch when maybe we don't realize we're matching the hatch. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I don't know where to go with that. I mean, like, I think a lot of the other stuff we talked about is more scientific and explainable mm -hmm. where when you look at like, you know, the, the, I can remember as a kid watching something they go, have you ever seen a fire tiger minnow before? Yeah, <laughs> and, right. and, and again, fire tiger. And when you can see 20 feet down, like really, but mm -hmm. uh, the color thing is, is I think subjective, but again, I, I'm a pretty good spinner fisherman. That's kind of my deal. Like I, I, I'll put myself up with anybody doing that. That's my favorite thing to do. And it's just a different deal. And I honestly, I don't use many things. I own a billion silver streak spinners, <laughs> but I, I tend to go with about a half a dozen and I'll switch, you know, many variables around in there. But I know when me and you are spinner fished, uh, when I say against each other, you know, at the same day in the same general area. And I, at the end of the day, I look in your boat and I'm like, what the f is that? <laughs> like, well, thank you. What? Yeah, I, yeah, it's not a compliment. It's not a compliment. <laughs> but, and I'm just like, what? And, and, you know, and, and my spinner stuff, just from a lot of days, I haven't narrowed down to, to a few different things for the conditions. And I, and I think that it's so much more about, um, as long as you're in the game with it, that it's more about the speed, the presentation, you know, the, the size, um, the depth, da, 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 right. But yet, obviously there's other guys over here catching fish and they're not doing that. And so all these fish are not hitting this, you know, antifreeze, silver streak, whatever it may be, your gold plate of this or that. But, um, 
I can tell you, I think consistently I would catch more just because I think guys get a little too crazy with the colors. I mean, some of these, these custom painted baits that I see, you know, just people putting them up on, that's the new thing on Facebook is you just see all these feeds and they're just, it's not, they don't show fish anymore. They just show, well, you see feet from some people, but um, <laughs> it's just, you see piled up on the floor, whatever, whatever that trend, however that gets started. But then they want to show me all their crankbaits, right? Mm -hmm. And I look at these things. I don't know about you. I mean, be real with me for a minute. Like I look at these and I'm like, if you gave me a case of those, I'm not putting it in the water. I'm just not. I would rather put the wrong color in front of the right fish anytime. Find the fish, find the active ones, put the lure style they want in front of them at the speed they want. And I mean, how many days do you actually have the ability to fine tune color? You don't, right? Like it, it's not like you can get to every day where there's one depth and one lead in one spot that's incredible and then you're tweaking color Actually, there's there's a funny story there so this is probably two weeks ago we're shooting this deal and a, a well-known local charter captain comes up to me at the end of the day and he says hey man you know you always shoot me straight on stuff when i need it he goes here's the payback and he hands me he gives me these baits right <laughs> and they're like three or four of the same exact lure in this color pad and i look at i look at the color pad and like i would never put that thing in the water I probably have a couple of those, but I would never put it in the water. And he goes, dude, and you could see they're chewed up. You see the hooks are, but there's like unmistakable. It's not like, this not like hook rash just on these things. And one of his guys was there and had watched our podcast, ironically enough. And he said to me, he's like, dude, oh my God, we've been slaying them on this the last two or three days. So the next morning out of eight rods, I put two of those out, right? I never touched a fish. <laughs> ironically, I see this guy at the end of the day and I go, here's your lures back <laughs> and he goes i never touched one on it today hmm. you know and it's just it's one of those things where you're like yeah it matters but it's hmm. the fun thing to talk about i think with guys this is like purses and shoes for dudes is is a good portion of this 100 right but at the same point i can tell you working on the business end of things like with silver streak lures for example Every year, like I've just got some of my samples, which will be potentially new colors for next year. Okay. And out of that 20 some colors, there's probably four that are going to come out. And it's because it's the four that consistently the 10 or 12 people he, he works with, you know, that are on his inner circle that say, Hey, these are the ones like he doesn't, we don't talk, we don't communicate even amongst these at the end. He's like always the same four or five guys say the same four or five things. Right. And that's, that's the bulk of that. And all these other ones just go away. So Color does matter, but I think we, like you said, we, what was your, your, your more eloquent way of saying it? The, I'd rather have the wrong color and the right fish or something. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that for sure. I, you know, if you have to find fish, then they have to be active and then you've got to put something in front of them they want. And to me, color is truly fourth in order of what I'm going to truly worry about. And it, it's hard to catch fish on, rods that are in the boat because you're changing the color for the fourth time in the last 15 minutes or 20 minutes, right? Well, as long as I've been doing this, I would say that I feel like I've learned more in the last few years based on this topic than I have in a long time, because I'm running, I would say day in and day out now, I'd run eight rods. You know, obviously some days I can't legally do that. So we're running, we're down to six or something, but I would say most days, no matter how many people have in the boat, I'll just run eight rods unless the bite's crazy difficult or crazy good. Hmm. And those extra few rods from what I used to run really do make a difference because those one, two, or three more are something that I'll put checkers or I'll put that lure that that guy gave me out where I wouldn't normally do that, right? And you'd be amazed how many days you do see a difference, whether it's good or bad, mm -hmm. um, you know, because you could just run some more stuff through. With that said, how many days have you, I'm going to ask you this, how many days have you been out there and you're catching fish? It's one here, two here, maybe you get a couple doubles. It's on the same old stuff. You, you, you've got your 10 colors that you mm -hmm. typically use, right? We all do. And then all of a sudden you hit a pod and you catch eight at one time. Like I got eight lines and I have eight fish on. Pretty sure that they didn't care about that, you know, yeah. that I didn't have the orange belly on that bait because yeah. you just went through a pod of angry hungry fish no no you were using the lures with one big dot instead of three small dots obviously but uh, I, I to me what's more important is do they want white base baits do they want chrome baits do they want transparent baits like i i do really worry more about families of color than i do oh man did it have a pink stripe or a purple stripe or you know it's 
Is it sunny or cloudy? Do they want it's chrome or do so, they want opaque? <laughs> it's so funny you should say that. Obviously, you know I do a lot of fishing media stuff and some of the, the accounts that I do where we do fishing reports or even our own stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, Big Water page there, we do fishing reports and different things. And I literally get people that stop me at the gas station. Some of the conversations I have at the gas station, 1,000% should be taped, even though they'd have to be so heavily edited. But <laughs> And I usually tell people, they're like, oh, so what are you catching them on? And I'll be like, well, you know, the chromes that were better early and then we went to the white stuff and people literally looked at me like I'm absolutely batshit crazy or like, dude, you were supposed to tell me that you were on a purple voodoo <laughs> or they start naming these colors. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like, because you don't give them that exact deal, mm -hmm. but yet hundred percent agree with you that even when me and you fish, you know, if, if you're out that day or something, it, I, I want to know, Hey, do I need to have some chromes out mm -hmm. and I'll kind of figure out my favorites from there. 100% agree. Golds would be another one. Antifreezes. Back in the day, more than now, the bare naked stuff, mm -hmm. you know, see-through, basically. You know, for a long time, like, a good example would be with Reef Runner. Pink Lemonade was one of the best colors. Maybe still is. I don't know. What do you mean was? Well, I, I don't seem to do as good on it. But for a number of years, then Cranberry Crusher, mm -hmm. for those not in the know, it's basically a bare naked or a transparent version of pink lemonade. And there was a, there was a number of years where, Oh my God, that was just, for me, that was just killer. And again, I probably haven't put it in the water as much. So that might be directly proportional to why the uh, fish catching is down on that. But when you get into those, those little, the same basic color, but then you just get into a variation of it because of the water conditions. So if it is gin clear, you know, in the summertime, but maybe that, that transparent one's going to work better than the big white one. Yeah. It's, we certainly spend a lot of time thinking and talking about it. And like I said, I remind myself often it's fourth on my list. <laughs> Producer dude's probably ready to tell me to move on because he's like, Oh my God, you guys talk about colors, but that's what everybody likes to hear. But yeah. I mean, you know, I guess acoustic telemetry doesn't really help us with, uh, with colors, does it? No, not, not one bit, not at all. <laughs> Although I can tell you one of the days that we did our first pilot testing to catch fish by fishing and put tags in them, uh, we worked with a lot of charter captains and, and tagged a lot of fish that were caught by fishing, not by traditional fish sampling gear. And uh, chrome baits on that first day that we did that for the first time were, were the best baits. <laughs> and, and, you know, the funny thing is, is... I Right now, I don't know numbers, obviously, but I, I know I'm not off that chrome based patterns are the best sellers, right? Whether yeah. it's gold or, or silver chrome or whatever you want to call it. Metallic. I can remember talking to, yeah, metallic, right? And I can remember back in the day, you know, some of those baits when I was a kid, you know, young guy doing this, that there was similar results. And then there was that pattern where a lot of those kind of crazy colors, the Wonder Breads, and then the bare naked stuff, like Reefrunner 100% changed the way people mm -hmm. did paint patterns with that bare naked stuff. And it's just, it's like a different world because I can remember Scott saying he just doesn't sell any chrome Reefrunners. This, this is back, you know, a number of years ago. And I'm like, huh? And that was right when that transformation, these guys started pulling other baits and, and mm -hmm. you know, even like Rapala, like there was way more Husky Jerk colors that were, that were, they had the glass series, they called it. Mm -hmm. And, and now they've got way more chrome or metallic finishes, I guess might be a better term. So crazy. We're moving on now. We've, yeah. We've thank you. Now. Thank you. I, I like how Ross said, oh, we've talked too long on this. And then you go for another like two minutes. All right. Well, I'm going to fast forward us into fall fishing. We've talked about spring and summer. Okay. And uh, it's really interesting what we see in our gillnet catches. We have a, a transect off of Huron where every fall, we set nets and that transect, we catch walleye, and it's always one of our best catch sites. But inshore to offshore, the catches are different every year. So, for example, four of the last seven years, the closest near shore sites had the highest catches. By far, the nets near what, shore. What are, you, what are you calling near shore? Within three miles of shore, two to three miles. Okay. So that's four of the last seven years. Two of the last seven years the farthest out, like near the border, international border sites caught the most fish. So thinking about that, we're in October, we're off here on, and obviously if if you could pick it, you'd go, you know, a mile or two out of the river and fish, right? You don't want to have to make a long run. You'd like fish to be near shore. My back and my pocket like the shorter <laughs> run. Exactly. So I, I'm curious when, when you're going out of uh, here on in October, what factors do you look at other than your sonar? So obviously sonar is like the real world, like yes, fish are here, fish aren't here. 
Are you looking at water clarity? Are you only looking for bait and fish on the sonar? What, what's, what's kind of guiding your search for fish out of here on? Because we've seen with our catches, it can be all the way out the border or it can be a mile out of the river and each year is different. I'm not a water temperature guy because I just, I'm, people looking at that number, you're going to get burned, whether it's how fast you're trolling or not or whatever. But when I say that to say this, so when we have a, what I would call a warm summer and I look down and Huron is, I, I don't even know off the top of my head, but let's say 65 degrees or something or 70 degrees. I'm like, buckle up buttercup because we ain't going to fish two miles out. I, you just kind of know. like, And I think a lot of that is those fish have had no reason to circle back to that shallower or more westerly direction. Like they're still eating the same fish that they were, you know, rainbow dace or maybe a gizzards. I don't know. Whatever it is to, to the east, right? They haven't left Cleveland yet. No. They're still at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> so... I was that was I was going to lead you to Gizzard Chad. Obviously, when they get back here, at some point between Cleveland and Huron, they go from encountering mostly rainbow smelt to encountering mostly Gizzard Chad. Where is the cutoff for rainbow days or rainbow smelt? Rainbow smelt, yeah. We see them as far uh, west as Kelly's Island, but I I would say somewhere around around Lorraine is kind of that natural break. If you're anywhere from Lorraine West, you're likely not around smelt that often. And what is the temperature that they can't take? Well, they're like all other fish. They're you know following that thermocline in the central basin in the summer. So their, their temperature preferences are probably very similar to adult walleye. And I, I'd have to look it up myself. I, I don't know what, what they, you know, exactly what they prefer, but they're central basin, cooler water species. They're they're moving around on that thermocline all summer and generally walleye are encountering them because they're looking for the same temperature and that's the main prey there. But when you get to Lorraine and usually when you get west of Lorraine, you're in the gizzard chad territory. And, you know, we're, when we sample walleye in the fall in that gillnet survey, we're cutting open all the stomachs. We're looking at diets and more than half of the fish in the diets. And I had to look at the most recent few years, but I'm going to tell you it's probably well above half now, probably 75% or more of the fish we're seeing are gizzard chad. So they're, they're fall fish. They're returning to this area. They're going to be where the gizzard chad are, right? Once they get back here and they're kind of in their staging mode for the rest of the fall and winter, they're going to be falling around gizzard chad. So a fun fact on that, just pausing you for a second, because I know I, I confirmed this with you on a, a podcast or somewhere along the lines we did just to, to bring that back. Gizzard chat out here can be, and again, at the boat launch, we've seen a pile of dead ones. And all of a sudden you just see one that looks like a whale, but those things can get 25, 26 inches long. People don't realize they mark just like walleyes, these big schools, but wasn't it the number like nine months that once a gizzard chat is older than nine months, it's almost too big for a walleye to eat. Is that? Yeah. So if you, I, I was going to lead you to, uh, so I was going to ask you how the gizzard chat size relates to crankbait size. So obviously if you look at fall young of year, so shad that were hatched this year were in their first fall, the average size in a walleye stomach is four to five inches. So unfortunately for them, for the gizzard shad, their average size is right in the prime walleye food item size. But you get into that next year and they're eight or nine inches or over and they, they grow out of the, the size where walleye can easily eat them. And especially when you start looking at their height, you know, they start getting some real height to their body. What, what I mean, I, I had a walleye one time that spit up a sheephead. I mean, and it was, it was broad. Like, you know, their heads, even when they're smaller are fairly broad. It looks kind of like big knothead there. I mean, what do you think realistically is, I know this is not a, a real concise answer, but I mean, what, what do you think that the, the average size that just, Hey, these fish can't eat this. They almost physically can't. So the biggest fish I've seen in a gut was a group of tournament fish we sampled. So I think it was uh, maybe PWT early on in my career or NWT after that. But we kind of, we were sampling these fish and I, I grabbed this fish and it's like, what is in the stomach? I mean, it literally felt like there was a calculator and it's not weights and fish. Was that, was that before weights and fish? This was, this was way before weights and fish before that was a thing. So we, we cut this fish open and it had like an 11 inch freshwater drum in it. 
and it's exactly what you said, you know, that kind of tall forehead and then tapering down to a, you know, thinner tail. But we don't see many fish over, well, nine inches is the largest gizzard shad we've measured in a walleye in the fall in the last 15 years. So on average, they're eating those gizzard shad that are up to nine inches. As fish, fish size increases, the biggest shad we see increases in the stomach. But nine inches is kind of the upper end of that. And, you know, I think the thing is, is that every, we all want simple answers, like with current, with colors and all that. And I can remember just with clients, because that's the cool thing about, you know, my guide services, we got some interesting characters, you know, people that just all from all walks of life. And I've had like scientist guys and different people that they bring things up and I'm like, the guy knows nothing about what we're doing, but yet he knows about a certain end of science or, or physics or whatever it may be. Right. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, this plays into what we're doing. And one of the guys had mentioned to me, he was like, well, you do realize this crankbait that you have that, you know, when you say you're downsizing, <laughs> what that actually looks like because of light reflection and refraction mm. down there, that that bait appears differently to them that it does to us. You know, no different when you see like your line going in the water and you look like it's going one way and it's obviously mm. we know it's Angle's not different. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I just, there's so many things I, I don't think we have an answer for, but it's things to maybe hopefully generate your, your thinking in your mind of like, maybe it's like unsolved mysteries, right? It isn't what it appears. Well, X-Files shit going on. So here, here's what the diet data tell us about walleye in the fall and the gizzard shad they eat. So if you use bigger baits, you will potentially catch bigger fish because we see that the maximum shad size increase as walleye size increases. So you can run eight or nine inch musky baits if you if you think that's interesting and want to do that and expect. I know a guy that does. You might. <laughs> but the interesting thing is at the other end of the spectrum, if you look at the smallest gizzard chad that we've seen in each size range of walleye, and it's two inches in every case. So if you use like a two inch rip shad, you aren't precluding catching big walleye because big walleye will have two, two and a half inch gizzard shad in their stomach. So you can watch that maximum size increase, but the minimum size doesn't increase as walleye get bigger. They all eat small shad if they're available. You know, I've, I've done an awful lot of really good fishing in the fall on very small lures, you know, when you think you should be going bigger and, mm -hmm. You know, same thing in the summertime. I, it doesn't matter if you're catching eight, nine, ten pounders on that eastern bite. I mean, sometimes having really small stuff is definitely the deal. So, but again, I think there's more than one thing going on there. I don't think this is so simple as to to put one factor on it. But so, Travis, I'm glad that um, you got to spend a little bit more time with us, and we could talk about how your spinner colors are not up to par, but yet somehow you're still catching some fish. Maybe not as many, but some, right? Well, there are a lot out there, right? <laughs> there's a lot of dumb ones out there there's a lot of dumb ones out there it's just like people some might say but nevertheless i i feel like you brought it producer dude do you feel like travis brought it because this is like as many times as we've done this it's always something kind of fresh or a different take on it yeah and what i found interesting was still somehow you talked more <laughs> <laughs> i have to say you know if, if if i might come back at some point i might have to uh ask that i, I run it because i like today <laughs> I kind of, you did run it. Yeah, I was I was the guest per se. You, you, That's true. You shot called. That's true. No, it's good stuff. I, again, I, I love it. I, I love this side of the fishing. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily like being on the boat, but I'm always interested in what's going on in the lake. And that is the specific got... producer dude. That really is. <laughs> producer dude is without a doubt the most famous non-fisherman in the state of Ohio, if not the Midwest, because we talk about him in the boat nonstop. People are like, what were those bands you got so your camera guy didn't throw up? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and then I show them the video of you collapsing and me stepping over your limp cold yeah, body. <laughs> nobody did anything. They just went, well. We had a triple on. <laughs> well, we had a triple on and we still had a B-roll camera going. So, yeah. you know. Um, we, we, we kicked him ultimately to see that there was a pulse. Um, that's a good video. I'm sure you could put that up in the corner. Captain chip was the only nice one out of that group and said, should we take him back? And I'm like, hell no. <laughs> and I survived and came back and rallied and finished the shoot. 
You've, it's a good video one. if you guys haven't watched. Honestly, like I've never seen anybody in my time that is seasick to the point of like violently ill, changing colors. And it was like someone turned the switch and like 10 minutes later, he was back filming, looking through a camera, which if anybody's ever done that, it's difficult anyhow on the water. I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know what happened there. There was like some <laughs> evil witchcraft shit going on. <laughs> anyway. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You know, I enjoy this and uh, that was fun. Yeah. You guys are definitely got her dialed in. We appreciate all that you're doing from the fisheries standpoint to help us make sure that we can go out there and catch a bunch of fish and we help understand a little bit more to, to do that. Um, so producer dude, I think we're gonna let Travis go back to his job and make some more fish indirectly or save some more or whatever the hell he is you do. I don't know. Fish. He, he's the one making fish. <laughs> he does. He does. Perfect. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's my story. It is what it is. He's, he's not making, making babies or, just no, let's, let's now just we're getting now. to a weird place. Yeah, I know. We went there. It took long enough. Well, thanks for tuning into the Big Water Podcast. Travis Hartman, producer dude, even got to say a few words today. We didn't kick him out. We may edit him out, but you never know. But uh, we've got a lot of stuff going on, don't we, producer dude? We've got Project Boat. We've got the podcast. We've got videos. What else do we have going on? That's Contests. it. Contests. Contests just ended. Contests. Yeah. Just, yeah, we got probably by the time this runs, we might have another one going. You never know. Make sure you check us in where bigwaterfishing.com, Facebook, Instagram, just about everywhere. Big Water Fishing.